Hello and welcome to the podcast, Rational Listeners. I'm your co-host Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the Felicitous Eddie Matthews. Welcome to the podcast, Eddie. How you doing? Well, welcome, welcome you, welcome you back. This is your, this is your I don't know what you're talking about. While. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Um, it's good to be back. Good to be back on the horse. Um, you know, there was a we took a couple months off. Yeah, life kind of got to us. March, uh, I think, was really busy for both of us. And then there was kind of the come down. And it was then, like a pandemic or something. I don't know. I heard about it on the news. I haven't all that. Well, we're back, we're back. And what are we talking? We've got a fun one today. What are what are we talking about? What do we have to celebrate the occasion? I don't know if the mic picked that up, but I just opened a little. Oh, nice, nice. Okay, beer. I think they could hear it. I think it was a little anticlimactic at the sound <laughs> close to the microphone, right. but I think everyone should be <laughs> picturing our, well, yeah, a massive beer. sound engineer. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. We are uh, taking a look at. An Atlantic article, America has a drinking problem. Because we're very cultured and we read we're very fancy magazines. <laughs> and uh, to kind of um, supplement how cultured we are, we're going to be talking about the Danish film Another Round, mm. uh, starring Mads Michelson. It was nominated for Best Director and I think a couple other Oscars in the 2021 Oscars. Um, which relates to the article as well. Um, so yeah, let's get into it. And to, to get into the mood of this article and the talk about drinking, you've got us here drinking a couple beers here at 6.30 in the morning. Is that right, Eddie's family? Uh, well, it's 6.45. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's six o'clock, family. Don't get on my, on my back. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so this article, I just came across it and I really enjoyed it. It's it's called America Has a Drinking Problem, but I would say, as you said when I when I mentioned that the title doesn't necessarily reflect the content, it does kind of have a a reek of the editor having chosen the title where the the journalist wrote kind of a considerably more nuanced piece uh, about the history of alcohol more generally and the history of drinking uh, in American culture as well. Um, so yeah, what was your main takeaways from the article? The first takeaway, um, well, let's back up. The first line of the article says, few things are more American than drinking heavily. And I was <laughs> like, as two Americans who have lived in Great Britain, I kind of take offense with that um, comment. Let me just say that you will come across um, no greater drinking and no greater joy than a Welsh pub right before um, a national rugby game in Cardiff match. Sorry to my Welsh listeners. Match in Cardiff in a pub. Uh, specifically when the song Sweet Caroline is playing <laughs> and specifically at the moment where it goes ba ba ba. Uh, your heart will be swelling 
as well as uh, the your top belly. of your pint glass. Yeah, there you go. In your belly. Mm. Maybe they're just um, too belligerent to fill out the surveys. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe Americans are just buzzed enough. They're like, yeah, sure, I'll, uh, I'll respond. And the Welsh are just on the streets <laughs> unable. Could to... be. <laughs> Although I will I say, mean, I... one of the facts that they brought up in this article was that the top 10%, to be in the top 10% of drinkers in America, you have to drink this amount per day. And I was astounded. I would thought, I would think maybe 1%. I would think, okay, people would drink. There's probably 1% of America that drinks quite a lot, but 10%, that's one in 10 people. So I would like listeners to take three seconds to think of what they think the top 10%, what would get you into the top 10% uh, of American drinkers? How much alcohol would you have to consume in terms of wine? There's your three seconds. Probably wasn't three seconds, but that's okay because you're drunk. <laughs> it is two bottles of wine a night to be in the top 10%. That's actually crazy. That's a ton of wine. I would think that would be a far narrower percentage, but it's also a really expensive uh, true. lifestyle choice. Very true. And I wonder if that's um, like equated in wine, like alcohol wise, where it's actually like really cheap gin that the people are drinking. I don't think they mean actually two bottles of wine. I think they mean the equivalent amount of alcohol as is in two bottles of wine is my guess. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, the article makes a really good point about America having an unhealthy relationship with alcohol in terms of like the both extremes, yeah, like being completely teetotalers and then being just binge drinkers. Um, Sorry, what do you think about the word teetotaler? Do you think that was somebody who doesn't drink trying to be really cool? They're like, oh, we're not, we don't drink, we're teetotalers. Or do you think it was somebody making fun of people who don't drink? <laughs> I don't even know what that word means. I mean, I think it just means people who don't drink, right? I assume it has some sort of like Quaker tie-in to right. some sort of colonial religion or something, but I don't actually, I don't actually know. It sounds cool. Yeah, it sounds very like, uh, you know, Jethro in yeah. the um in the old like uh, pilgrim era yeah which I thought, absolutely another thing this article uh reminded me of is just how like fun essays can be because it just is very wide-ranging in both like the analysis of uh america's drinking culture but also like what like from an anthropological lens like what how human beings evolved to drink so much and why we drink so much and and one of my favorite lines from the article was talking about how um, about 10 million years ago, a, gen a genetic mutation left our ancestors with a souped up enzyme that increased alcohol metabolism 40 fold. And the theory is that um, in, the, in a scramble for food, our predecessors resorted to eating fermented fruit off the rainforest floor and those animals that liked the smell and taste of alcohol and were good at metabolizing it were, reward, were rewarded with calories. In the evolutionary hunger games, the drunk apes beat the sober apes. <laughs> and I thought that that was um, like a fascinating theory, but also just like a really interesting um, kind of evolutionary biology lens to look at something that's so a part of our lives right now and question why is it so kind of endemic to every culture. I mean, yeah. not every culture, of course, yeah, yeah. but like Muslim I would say most. I mean, yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. If you mentioned, like there's mentions of psychology articles, it's about American drinking, there's a whole history of it. If you noted the things that 
this journalist was trying to put into the article and said, you know, can they make this coherent? I would have certainly said no, but they do a great job making it seem like it flows some sort from the beginning to the end. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I think let's start off by saying kind of what is your relationship to kind of alcohol? Like what do you, when you think of like, Oh, I want a beer. Is that like, do you feel like guilty for having one or is it like a thirst quenching into your day kind of reward? Yeah, it's the latter. Um, and I think I, I've definitely drinking more since the pandemic and drinking alone more uh, because I live alone and because I haven't really been able to see many people for the last you know year or so. And that's like an interesting kind of wrinkle to the article too, where it was just talking about um, basically advocating for social drinking uh, being something that lowers inhibition, that increases sociability, that increases solidarity, that um, allows you to make new friends because so you're going down to the pub and meeting new people and like drinking together and everybody's kind of like in this relaxed state that alcohol um, allows for, you know, neurologically. Um, but drinking alone, like increase, it's, it's, it's the worst impacts of alcohol from a health standpoint and also like increases depression and like worsens your mental health. So it has none of the benefits of the sociability and none of the kind of reasons why alcohol would actually be good for your health and all of the detriments, right? Yeah. Uh, in, um, in honor of uh, our former, uh, I don't know if she's actually been on the, co- uh, the podcast, but longtime listener, Ali Pasanante Yams, who is uh, currently her birthday as we record this, she, she has a frequent saying where she says, it's not, it's not drinking alone if people are DMing you on Tinder. So we'll, uh, we'll give her that shout out. Everyone who's an employer, just remember that quote. That is directly from her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, or there's like some company in the article, I think it's Bush, um, that in the article they talked about how they came out with like a dog bone broth yeah, I see, and, yeah. And said you no longer have to drink alone, you can drink with your dog, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, if 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 you're you know not lucky enough to have all these people DMing you on on Tinder, that is. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned was um, which made me more jealous of psychologists, I think, than anything to do with alcohol was one of the articles they noted or the evidence for the benefits of social drinking was they like got a group of random people together. And at one party, they served non-alcoholic uh, like beverages and one they served alcoholic beverages. And they were like, that party is way more fun. <laughs> and I was like, wait, who, who sectioned this research? They're like, we're going to need $6,000 in alcohol. <laughs> right. and we're going to get a bunch of people together. <laughs> so so this, is, this is actually a great um, segue into uh, talking about the film. So another round. It's a great, and actually the, the trailer, if you um, wanted to watch the trailer listeners um, or you know, even uh, watch the film, I highly recommend it. But um, the premise is that there's these four friends who all teach at a um, kind of like a you know, K through 12, like Danish private school. And, um, and they're all you know, out to dinner at a table and drinking champagne and one of the friends uh says you know there's this norwegian philosopher who claims humans are born with a blood alcohol content that's 0.05 percent too low and like our optimum kind of like 
uh, uh, basically homeostasis for, for self-confidence and productivity, our optimum would be if we kept our blood alcohol content at 0.05% and like drank, you know, consistently at that um, level throughout the day. And so it's so funny because uh, the way that they, that these four friends like approach um, trying out this, this theory, right. Testing it out is so like pseudoscientific, but it sounds like when they're doing it, you can like see yourself being in the room being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is for research purposes, the study, you know? So they're like typing out, you know, um, documenting each stage of the test and like their mental state and their social and professional performance. That's purportedly what's supposed to be about, you know, like optimizing their social and professional performance and um, measuring the quote, psycho rhetorical effects <laughs> <laughs> that's a great pseudoscience term yeah that's it was perfect. a perfect pseudoscientific term um so anyways and then they come up with all these arbitrary rules that have no basis in any sort of science so they're like we'll only drink during work hours like Hemingway <laughs> and no drinking after 8 p.m or on weekends um and so these are kind of the rules that they start with and so um as each of them kind of gets up to 0.05 and, you know, and they're like drinking throughout the day and they're all teachers at the school. Right. So they're like drinking during, you know, they're like sneaking off into the bathroom and to drink gin. And then they have a breathalyzer to make sure that they they're at 0.05 and don't go above or below. They must have better standards um, at these, uh, these Danish schools. I feel like uh, <laughs> our teachers were just knocking them back big boots, German boots right in front of us. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, you can drink at work, but you have to be discreet. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so, and then you see like each of them start to like optimize their both, you know, like when they're at their families and, and at school and like their teaching gets better and they're like, there's really something to this, you know? So that's like act one of the film and then act two, they're like, let's push it. Like, I think we could do better. So they go like 0.07 and then they go to 1.0. And then there's this scene where like inexplicably they're like, we need to establish like what the outer limit is, you know? <laughs> and so they just start drinking absinthe and just get hammered, you know? Um, and then it just gets out of control and evolves and, uh, you know, they start like wetting the bed and their marriages start to fall apart. And, um, you know, and I know I'm kind of like spoiling the movie, but I, I think it's worthwhile to say that a lesser movie and like a lesser work of art, I think would have stayed there where it's like alcohol is bad. You know, it's, it's destroying your families. It's, you know, you can't kind of control it. And I think an American film would have ended with, yeah, you know, all the families in tatters because they're mm-hmm. just drinking so heavily, which is realistic. But then they kind of like realize they need to pull back and they realize it's obviously bad to like, that <laughs> this, this theory has nothing like undergirding it as far as scientifically. <laughs> they check the data. They're like, Oh no, it doesn't look good. <laughs> <laughs> right. I've run um, the regressions in. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, um, you know, in, in Europe, all of our European listeners um, will know that at the end of the year, kind of like your, um, your master's program they have these really big exams you know and like everything is depending on this like these years the year end exams um and so basically there's this huge like point of celebration um because all this all of their students pass their exams and they're just such like in jubilant uh in such jubilant mood and then one of the 
four friends, one of the main guys uh, dies by suicide. And so it's this strange kind of like grief and point of jubilation. And then the ending scene is just the teachers like parting with their students and drinking champagne and like not getting hammered, but it's like a very celebratory sense, um, which was a really like interesting kind of note to, to end it on. I think that's what matches well with the article because the article also doesn't take a, a really a stance um, other than to kind of note that drinking alone or binge drinking really does have you know detrimental effects, um, but that drinking can have positive effects if you do it in the right circumstances. Um, and they mentioned something called the Balmer Peak, who um, Steve Balmer, who's the head of who a former head of Microsoft, a former CEO of Microsoft, um, and now the owner of the Clippers, had apparently promoted something called the Balmer Peak, which is basically for coders, where they drink a certain amount, and if you can maintain a certain level of of alcohol in your system, just like in the movie, you can code at a very impressive and efficient rate. But if you go any beyond that, you start to make mistakes and any less and you kind of lose focus. Um, And supposedly there's rumors that the best coders have IV drips that'll keep them (laughs) stable in Microsoft. So I texted uh, Carson, who's a coder, and he said he doesn't know of that specific uh, incident or that specific case, but he he believes it because there's a lot of similar theories floating around in in the tech sphere. Yeah, and that made me think of the movie too. Just the idea that um, that if you just kept it consistent without getting too drunk or getting too sober, that there's some sort of optimum, um, which is of course is nonsense. But it's is I think what really compelled me about the premise of that film too was the idea that like excuse me, um, he's three deep right now, Matthew's family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's an empty initial... six pack right behind him <laughs> <laughs> well you can only see the one there's two empty six packs um, it's okay it can still count we're good <laughs> when he loses count yeah. that's when we get in big trouble <laughs> no it, it's it's the idea that like what a fascinating premise that we you know evolutionarily can be born with a deficit of something and that we need some sort of supplement or stimulant or something to like get to just stasis i think another one of the example of this would be sunscreen right like we can't just go out well most of us can't just go out and just be in the sun all the time and like for there not to be any sort of consequences so we need this like supplicant to speak for yourself i'm obviously you know bronze and uh, beautiful so that's that's never been a problem (laughs) well yeah that's why i say most of us (laughs) i think i mean there's obviously something to that right like some people are just I don't know if, if societally it's harder to come up with examples of like things we all need, but I guess you can always point out things like shoes. Like obviously that's helpful, but um, I think there are definitely something to be said for individual people who have, are just more gregarious or have a more outgoing, you know, personality are intrinsically at a higher level in those sorts of things. That certainly is a range. Um, and so, you know, things that, enable those types of people can be more beneficial, but they often be more detrimental depending on, you know, it's, it's more risky to take something that's uh, a known you know, substance rather than something like vitamins or sunscreen. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's fascinating in its premise because I think they're just like pseudoscience. There's like a hint of truth, right? Everyone's like, yeah, you know, after that first beer, I'm pretty good at beer pong, you know, like I, uh, <laughs> you're a little more loose and then you have a few more and suddenly you can't hit the table. Um, but yeah, I, I, 
think they also bring up the com- comparison they use for Americans is Italians who are kind of known for having a very, I would say a very close relationship with alcohol, but in a much different way. So the way uh, the journalist describes it is that they don't ever drink to get drunk and it's never done alone, right? They're the two things that she kind of points out as, as basically negatives overall. And they do it socially and they treat alcohol as kind of like another food to kind of stimulate conversation. Um, and so one other uh, podcast that I sent you that kind of matches this is something I listened to a while back from the indicator, which showed that during prohibition in the US, the amount of patents in places with uh, full uh, prohibition went down of like five to 15%, um, which is about as much as the Great Depression in terms of innovation. And they attribute that to being a lack of conversation and creativity that was stimulated by the ability to meet in bars and converse with people, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting. So it's not, it's not to say that alcohol inspires creativity. It's to say that alcohol provides two things, like a reason, a thing to all, like a, a point of convergence for people all to like come together around um, and to like consume together and for that to be like a point of continuity. Um but then also chemically, it lowers our inhibition enough to be able to like strike up a smoother kind of sociable conversation. And through that conversation, more creative ideas spring. That's like, I think one of the points that um, they make in the Atlantic article, which, which I thought was a really interesting like premise, you know, because it's not to say, again, it's not really dependent to the substance, but more to how the substance provides a reason for a group like a creative group to get together, right? Yeah, and coming back to the kind of historical aspects of that, they, they I'm going to probably butcher the pronunciation, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most of our listeners probably don't know how to pronounce this either, so I'm going to use that to our benefit. It's the Gobekli Tepe, which is apparently an archaeological find that's older than um, Stonehenge in Turkey, where they've found similar uh, stones, stone slabs, where they've bunch of people would have had to, they estimate, you know, at least uh, like 50 people would have had to come together to push these slabs up into the position they're in. And they believe because they found basically kegs nearby and fermenting equipment and no um, evidence of habitual living that essentially it was where a bunch of people and different tribes would come together and just party. (laughs) And this is older than Stonehenge. And uh, they think that this was a, you know, an evolutionary advantage because groups that could get along could obviously join together in conflict if necessary and protect themselves if necessary. Whereas groups that didn't have alcohol, didn't have Budweiser back in the day would just uh, continue fighting the whole time and wouldn't necessarily be able to agree on anything. So, um, I mean, it's fascinating. It sounds like the type of thing that somebody would make up at a bar drunk (laughs) in the middle of the night, but Apparently, there's some science behind it, and it lends some credence to some of the ideas I've come up with while in a bar, because uh, usually you wake up the next day, and you're like, that's a terrible idea, but maybe next time, you never know. I'll have to mortgage mortgage uh, <laughs> my car and see if I can put down on some uh, roly coasters or something. <laughs> well, what, what kind of drunk are you? Are you uh, more excitable, or are you more mellow, or are you more tired, or what? Eddie, I've never been drunk before. Uh, my family listens to this podcast. <laughs> I, Your employers listen to this podcast. 
No, only yams and players. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think that alcohol usually kind of just accentuates whatever mood I'm in, which is a real buzzkill because it would be great if it was like, I think what people think it's going to be like, I'm in a bad mood, I'm going to drink and now I'm going to feel better, but that doesn't work for me at all. <laughs> so I don't really drink when I'm in a bad mood because then it just makes me in the worst mood. It's more like oh, I'm in a pretty good mood and I'm going to you know take the edge off and just be in like a slightly less, I don't know, slightly less uh, in my head version of the same mood I'm already in, but that's just for me. I don't know about you. I just get more tired. <laughs> well, that's even less fun. I know, <laughs> but I also, I like how uh, there's just a level of tired that you already are just more tired. <laughs> you're just constantly tired. You have a beer. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just an accentuation of my normal state. Yeah. Um, but I've also had the experience of it, of me being like more, um complimenting of other people i just get nicer (laughs) i don't i haven't i've never been i don't i don't know if i've ever been drunk in the sense of i've never forgotten like what happened i've never said anything i regret i've never like gotten to that point um so i've definitely gotten to the point where i like I think what I don't like about alcohol is that I usually am not as articulate as I would be without it. And that's, what's hard, you know? Um, and so, I don't know. Do you feel like it's a lot easier for you to strike up a conversation with a stranger when you guys are drinking? I would say with or a no? stranger, see, it's hard to tell if it's, if it's the, you know, the classic like release of inhibitions, or is it just that me ordering something at a bar and having something similar in my hand is the icebreaker I needed to talk to that stranger. Like if I didn't have anything and they didn't have anything and we were just on the street, that's a lot harder to strike up a conversation. So it's, it, it would be tough to separate that, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I would say that, I, or maybe it's just, you know, normatively more accepted that if you're in a bar, like kind of everyone is up for chatting a bit more. Although I haven't been in a bar in a really long time. So to be fair, this is <laughs> maybe my memories. I'm, everyone's just like, God, like I keep, won't shut up and <laughs> nobody <laughs> right. wants to talk to him. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy bars. I do like you, you get a group of friends together. I cannot, we're, we've mostly been talking about beer. Cause I think that's what, like, that's our probably at least my choice of alcohol if I'm going to have alcohol, but definitely a whole different thing if we start bringing in like hard alcohol which is a lot of what this article is about where i guess hard alcohol wasn't even really used until like the 1700s in kind of western europe um and the u.s which is you know pretty recently and in terms of human history like basically yesterday um so it's unsurprising because if you've ever had hard alcohol you realize this is very unnatural very quickly (laughs) your body's like wait you're poisoning me so that's how we're gonna do this (laughs) (laughs) so yeah anytime someone tries to offer me a shot that's just that's basically a declaration of war um one of my worst memories i showed up my old job and i got invited to a work party like the first week i worked there and they were like i don't know i don't know what the deal was but i showed up and they were like oh you look like a whiskey guy like do you want a thing of whiskey i was like uh sure i guess you look like a whiskey I don't know. I know that's a compliment or a huge diss. I don't know enough about whiskey to know what the series is. an icebreaker, I yeah. guess. So they hand me a thing of whiskey, like a lot of whiskey. And then I turn around, everyone else is drinking like, like beer. They just specifically singled me out <laughs> to give me like, like nothing else, just whiskey. And, I, and it was all, yeah, I don't know if you've ever had, it was very hard to drink and it took me a very long time because I'm not cool like the people in the movies who just like can drink whiskey straight without wincing. 
so that was that was a good time <laughs> yeah whenever i do a shot i'm always the person that's like oh oh in one go <laughs> I, i've I convinced like it's a scam it. like people are like yeah let's do it i'm like wait like who paid you like when you went to the bathroom somebody was like here i'll give you 20 bucks to get those people to take shots or something right i don't know we need to bring somebody on who like really parties i feel like to do justice to this side of the debate but uh I yeah know. i don't know we're too boring for that <laughs> I, lo- I loved the bit about um george washington just getting everybody drunk to win votes <laughs> yeah apparently yeah. apparently the article talks about how he first won elected office in 1758 and gave his voters 144 gallons of alcohol enough to win 307 votes and uh, i hate like where do you even find all this alcohol uh, it's yeah uh it wasn't just the cherries the reason he didn't cut down <laughs> that cherry tree is coming really clear now <laughs> right <laughs> and then uh I guess he he used alcohol during the Revolutionary War to keep the troops happy and then became a, a whiskey distiller um, after the war, which I thought was interesting. Not in this article, but did you know that Johnny Appleseed, you know the story, which I, to this day, don't understand why it's taught in all American schools. They're like, oh, should we teach slavery? No, no, Johnny Appleseed, this guy wore a pan on his head. <laughs> Put that in third grade. <laughs> But basically, the real story is essentially that the reason he was dropping apples everywhere is because that's what people fermented back in the day. And so the reason everyone loved it was like everyone just wanted to get hammered on fermented apples. And so this guy came around planting apple trees and like got the entire country drunk. And so that's why he's famous. But that wasn't in the third grade lesson about Johnny Appleseeds for some reason. So no, I mean, he also also has a really catchy name, I think. Very true. Very true. You think he was born with that name? He's like, I got to go into apples. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I love um what's the name of this guy slen slenningler slingerland so he wrote this book that he describes as a holistic defense of alcohol and um i just love it because he his special he specializes in chinese religion and philosophy And then the journalist says, in a conversation this spring, I remarked that it seemed odd that he had just devoted several years of his life to a subject so far outside his wheelhouse. He replied that alcohol isn't quite the departure from his specialty that it may seem. (laughs) I just love, never trust an academic who's like, actually, that's not that far outside of my wheelhouse. Especially when it comes to alcohol, I feel like. I feel like. Stick to your lane, man. I feel like every subdiscipline is probably like, well, let me tell you about how this ties into alcohol. (laughs) I think as a writer in in the UK, when you did your PhD, you're pretty much, did they not let you graduate until you like could down a Guinness in less than like a couple minutes or... Did you have to know? That was like, that. Wanted... That was the hardest part of the dissertation defense. Like they had two Guinnesses, and one of them was cold, and one of them was like bone dry from the tap. And they're like, "Which one's going to take?" And it's just a straight fail <laughs> if you take the one, the cold. No, one. Well, it was hard because they required me to pour two Guinnesses in front of them, down both of them mm. in sixty seconds. I don't know if anyone's tried to down two Guinnesses in 60 seconds, but that was, I tried, like I trained for several weeks before knowing that this is going to be the hardest part of dissertation defense. I couldn't do it. So what I did was I filled both with root beer, like the cans of Guinness with root beer 
because I did it over Zoom. There you go. So I had to be the one to like beer. And mm. so I bought the Guinness cans, filled both with root beer, and then opened them again, poured it, and then I was able to do it easily. And they were impressed and I passed. Um, but then if any of them hear this, they're going to revoke my PhD, I imagine. I would think that that would be grounds for dismissal. Probably a barment from any no, it institutions. Was, it was so funny because like going to Swansea um, was the exact opposite of, so the university I did my undergrad and master's at Point Loma is a dry campus. Like Nazarene, they don't drink alcohol, right? Like it's not permitted. And so I go to Swansea and like one of my good friends was in their political science, like PhD program. And all the political science students would go just get hammered like every Friday night with hey, all their that's professors. that's a Swansea thing. No political science students follow <laughs> right. this pattern. And so, and the professors would just like buy them uh, all these drinks. And it was funny. Um, just how crazy different. They'd be like out partying with their professor at like 2 a.m. I'd be like, oh my God. I will say, I, so it's not the alcohol, but like we've been off campus for a long time. And fortunately, I, I'm in the middle of like doing some research projects that I had already come up with. But being on campus, I can see why, you know, having bars or like places to meet up and talk about random ideas is so helpful for things like innovation, because not being on campus does make it way more difficult to come up with maybe not innovative ideas, but ideas that are innovative to me, like things I wouldn't think of on my own that I need somebody else to start and then i'm like oh yeah that reminds me of this and you kind of add on just being in person with other people it just doesn't work over zoom the same way um no not at all well and i mean i think like that was one of the best parts of living in the uk was just the pub culture was so warm and generous and just nice and so different i don't know our bars are colder and more i don't know like um it's the way that I think driven. a lot of it is like, I don't know if this is the, I don't know, even know what field it would be, but the like ergonomic design of American bars is like, you're an individual group. You're in this stall away right. from everyone else, but like yeah. British bars, it's like, you're standing up. <laughs> we ran out of chairs an hour ago. <laughs> you have <laughs> right. to talk to that person next to you because yeah. you're stuck next to them. Um, which I think, I mean, oh, some people don't like that, but I think it's really nice. So, Cause it's not like, oh, you're in a, it's like dancing and you have to dance. With this. It's more like, oh, say hello and see if that person's not, you know, a total ass and now you can have a new friend or whatever. Um, which is something I mean, that we don't really have in the U S it's true. Sometimes in the UK, I would go to a pub just because I knew it'd be warm. And it was so damn cold <laughs> in like my apartment or outside, you know. That's, you know, they feel like one of the biggest <laughs> mysteries as to why the UK is the one that came up with all the in- innovations around the Industrial Revolution. And they've been trying to solve it for years, but I think you just solved it. <laughs> they had pubs and it was really cold. <laughs> and they're inside. They're like, wait, we might as well innovate. We've got to come up with some engines. <laughs> I <It's> think. freezing. <laughs> I think in the UK, they drink so much because they're cold and it's like the weather's dreary and it's not pleasant outside. And I think in the US, we drink because we're lonely. <laughs> That's, I think it's fair. I think it's fair. Um, yeah, not so, to overgeneralize. Hey, <laughs> this is a, a universal sample we've taken. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing that they talk about the US is I don't know if we ever really said what the, the thesis is, but basically there's kind of a boom and bust model 
in the US where <laughs> America starts drinking and then two decades go by and suddenly we're the highest drinkers in the world and we all have some sort of fallback and we're like, wait a second, this is getting out of control. And then we go in the exact opposite direction. We stop drinking dramatically because of some health scare or because of prohibition or because of you know morality uh, clauses. And the author notes that we're actually at a, a kind of a peak right now. Um, so we don't know if that's, uh, the, is, this is the apogee and we're suddenly at the, the forefront of some sort of moral calamity or health calamity that's going to reverse the trend. Uh, but quite a few people in the US drink right now. And it's probably uh, the least taboo it has been at least since the 90s is what uh, the article kind of said. Hard for me to really judge that because I've only been able to drink since the, the 2010s. So I can't really say what the, the moral sense was, but it does seem that Amongst people over 21, the taboo against drinking is pretty much non-existent in most urban areas. I don't know if that's your thoughts as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the statistics it quotes is, says from 99 to 2017, uh, the number of alcohol-related deaths in the U.S. doubled to more than 70,000 a year. Um, yeah, which is crazy. It is. And it's crazy like, to th- yeah. it's crazy to think that's such like recent history. Like if you had told me that they doubled in the last, you know, like 20 years, but you know, as compared to 1880 to 1900, it would be like, well, yeah. But yeah. it's like, no, it's they had every like the the population and alcohol, everything was like similar in the 90s. And yet well, they yeah. said a lot of it is a, more a than shift doubled. in one of a couple of the big trends are women have now drink a lot more than they used to. Um, and also a shift away from beer and towards harder alcohols and sub- alcohol substitutes, which more like, you know, Mike's hard lemonade and these things that are like not alcohol, but still have alcohol um, that have kind of filled the gap in what was traditionally pretty much just a beer market. Um, so there's just more demand for different types of services and uh, specific lines of alcohol. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see. I feel like right now, uh, drinking and fitness are both really highly valued. In like, <laughs> a, around, you have to like, counterbalance. Young... Everyone stayed the exact same level of fitness. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a really interesting kind of um, pairing. I think uh, that kind of finding alcohol that can still allow you yeah. to to be a fit the low person. calorie yeah trend and everything like that um yeah it's fascinating i don't know so okay let's close up by saying what is your favorite alcoholic drink recommendation for the fans out there or what they should send you for a rationalish anniversary um well my brother sandy makes uh his own wine okay and he's got a Grenache blend. It's a red wine. Um, and it's very good. Well, so that's hard that's my... for our fans to send or probably to get, but <laughs> maybe we, we can, uh, if you reach out on our email, we will get back to you with a way to order Eddie's favorite drink in the world. I'm, I'm definitely like, a, I don't know, like red wine at night with a book is a really like pleasant, uh, like it doesn't make me feel like I'm drinking alone and I'm sad and lonely. It's like, Oh, I'm spending time with 
this author, I got my red wine. It's nice. There's antioxidants. But then when I drink alone and it's like some German beer from Trader Joe's, I, there's no hiding. You, you there's feel no, judged. Yeah. Do you no, swirl there's no, the wine? There's no hiding. In your glass? <laughs> well, there's, yeah. Well, I don't mind the elitism that I feel when I'm drinking the wine and reading. No, that's a benefit, I would assume. <laughs> no, yeah, of course. That stokes my ego, which is great. I need that. But, the frontal um, cortex is struggling with the alcohol. Your, your labor, all your right. other brain parts are like, yeah, this is legit. <laughs> yeah, but when I'm drinking the cheap German Trader Joe's beer, I'm just like, uh, it's been a long day and I'm sad. It doesn't go to the judgmental parts of your brain. Those things are still working overtime. They're like, this is not good. <laughs> no, it just goes to like straight coping, you know? And I think that's what... Um, the article was, was saying about the dangers of drinking alone. It's like alcohol isn't, isn't in any way a point of sociability. It's just a coping mechanism, yeah, you know, yeah. for, for stress. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what about you? So I was going to say Guinness because it's, it is probably like a good, like fresh Guinness is pretty hard to beat. Cause also you can't really sip it that fast. It's kind of like an enjoyment beer, you know, even it's in like the you, summer. You don't chug. I love Guinness. I'm a big fan. You don't really get it here in the U.S. As I don't really drink like when I'm in the U.K. though, or somewhere where they have a factory nearby. There's a good oh, factory in Nigeria. Yeah, it's so it's good. The best. Yeah. yeah. Um, but let's, let's come with something a little bit more unique for the for the listeners out there who are they're trying to to get themselves some alcohol on the weekends. Um, I would say we, we don't have high hopes. Don't drink alone, listeners. Call us up. Don't drink alone. We, can, uh, we will gladly jump on a Zoom call with you. Um, oh man, what would see. I do enjoy, I will say, I'll, I enjoy a Corona. This, I like the taste. It's pretty unique. And I think those commercials where they're like, oh, it's summertime, have a Corona. I'm like, you know what? If a beer was going to taste like summertime, they pretty much nailed it. <laughs> so I don't know if I've been subliminally messaged and now I just I associate know, that with summertime. I stand by it. I can get the I'm hate more hate. a Modelo guy when it comes oh, to Mexican beers. <laughs> and that's the end of the podcast, folks. This is the last episode. <laughs> No, yeah. So <laughs> Slingerland, that author, Such a bad, um, bad name. Who, yeah, who's interviewed, who I had trouble pronouncing his name. Um, so he wrote this book, just like you know, pouring over all this anthropological data about you know drinking and such. And he came up with with this advice. He goes, uh, "Drink only in public with other people over a meal, or at least he says under the watchful eye of your local pub's barkeep." That guy sounds like he has the coolest job in the world. <laughs> yeah. I need to figure out what, what that guy does exactly. Um, well, you need to, you need to get a university of British Columbia to track him down, I think. And he was like Stanford before that. So he's actually, a smarty pants. To be fair, not that far from the university of Washington. So maybe uh, I'll head up there and see, see what Slingerland yeah. is, is doing. <laughs> Have a beer with him. Yeah. Well, anything else to say on our, uh, our podcast? We recommend another round. We certainly recommend that to listeners who enjoy a good movie. I think it's on Hulu. Yeah, it, uh, I think it is on Hulu. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I don't know that like I watch a lot of movies and that one stayed with me for like weeks afterward in a, in a way that most movies don't. We didn't even mention that Mads Mikkelsen is in it. He's terrific. He's terrific. Yeah. So that's, and it. he's not like so. a villain, which every other movie you've ever seen him in, he's a villain. Um, this poor guy's got the face for it. Great villain face. It's like Michael yeah, Shannon. I just like it's hard to take that guy seriously. In, a, in like, a, yeah, 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 he could never be yeah. like a twist bad guy. You know, like 
you would be see yeah. it coming like miles away. <laughs> Either has to be the bad guy or like an anti. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it'd be weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, he's great. Um, it's just a. Yeah, it's it's if if you're in the mood for a movie that wrestles with human depravity and also the uh, abundance of life, it's a good one to check out. And this article um, on the Atlantic which I lost uh, while we were talking, but which I lost. <laughs> it is called America has a drinking problem. And That's we'll put it in the bio. Yes, Link in we bio. Will. And it is actually really good. You should definitely read it. It will take a little bit of time. It's fairly long, but it is definitely worth it. Um, otherwise reach out. We're going to be back. Hopefully we'll get a few of these out. I tried to pitch Eddie on an idea about uh, gerrymandering. He was not down, but alcohol one, he was all for. So <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna try to do right. some more so you can you can judge listeners you're probably like thank goodness this wasn't an hour on gerrymandering so fair enough i, I respect fair that. Enough. <laughs> but uh we hope you enjoyed this please reach out with recommendations for new episodes if you have a good article that you think is just an interesting read send it our way we can be reached anywhere you get your podcasts and by do we have, we have an email specifically for the podcast or we just say email to our gmails i can't remember no just email you that's fine my name is morgan whack i have a gmail <laughs> it's just my name and then at gmail.com that's where you can find me oh, you're so lucky i didn't uh, get that the problem is i lose the accounts a lot and then it's like this is taken i'm like i know it's me <laughs> that happened right. on twitter i had like it was like morgan whack is taken i'm like damn it i opened a twitter a while back to <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're, you're so, older, so. It took me like 20 minutes. To, it actually took me a lot longer than that to figure out how to finally get rid of that and take that uh, moniker back. But now you can find me on Twitter as well if, uh, if that's how you reach out to people. I'd also love to have um, some, some guests on if you have something well, my, uh, my that you want to talk about. Colleague slash professor Nico Switek is going to come on soon for listeners who know him. He's awesome. And uh, he's going to come on maybe next week or the week after. So that'll be great. But other people... Please reach out and we're happy to have you on. Yeah.